0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News.
1: Imagine an elephant in a room. This elephant is not the proverbial weighty issue, but an actual weighty mammal. Imagine the room is spacious enough to accommodate it, make it a school gym. Now imagine a mouse has scurried in too. A robin hops alongside it. An owl perches on an overhead beam. A bat hangs upside down from the ceiling. A rattlesnake slithers across the floor. A spider has spun a web in a corner. A mosquito buzzes through the air. A bumblebee sits upon a potted sunflower. Finally, in the midst of this increasingly crowded hypothetical space, add a human. Let's call her Rebecca. She is sighted, curious and, thankfully, fond of animals. Don't worry how she got herself into this mess. Never mind what all these animals are doing in a gym. Consider instead how Rebecca and the rest of this imaginary menagerie might perceive one another. The elephant raises its trunk like a periscope. The rattlesnake flicks out its tongue and the mosquito cuts through the air with its antennae. All three are smelling the space around them, taking in the floating scents. The elephant sniffs nothing of note the rattlesnake detects the trail of the mouse and coils its body in ambush. The mosquito smells of the alluring carbon dioxide on Rebecca's breath and the aroma of her skin. It lands on her arm, ready for a meal, but before it can bite, she swats it away and her slap disturbs the mouse. It squeaks in alarm at a pitch that is audible to the bat, but too high for the elephant to hear. The elephant, meanwhile, unleashes a deep thunderous rumble, too low-pitched for the mouse's ears or the bat's, but felt by the vibration-sensitive belly of the rattlesnake. Rebecca, who is oblivious to both the ultrasonic mouse squeaks and the infrasonic elephant rumbles, listens instead to the robin, which is singing at frequencies better suited to her ears. But her hearing is too slow to pick out all the complexities that the bird encodes within its tune.
0: Hey everyone, from LinkedIn News, this is In the Arena, a podcast exploring human potential. I'm Leah Smart, and every week you'll find me right here in conversation with bright minds and brave hearts, learning how we can improve our lives and our world by transforming ourselves. So Earth Day is coming up, and though I'm not typically someone who wears red on Valentine's Day or puts a sticker on my t-shirt for National Donut Day, I do experience this profound sense of awe when it comes to the amazing planet we all live on. And I think there was some point we all got so busy that we decided we don't have time anymore to concern ourselves with simple things like nature. But I'm pretty sure that's where we've gotten it wrong. Consider as a kid, if you ever went for a hike... When you weren't wondering when it was going to end, you were investigating a strange plant or eyeing a bug you'd never seen before, inching up the side of a tree. Maybe at the hike's finale, you reached a striking view or a waterfall and took a deep breath in and felt relief, peace, and joy. During the hike, you probably had questions, curiosities, and you were likely filled with wonder. Why do we stop doing this as adults and convince ourselves that nature is just a place we visit on a day off or because a kid has a field trip? The thing is, no matter where you live, you are able to experience nature every single day. And it's often much simpler than we make it out to be. It's also always extraordinary when you slow down and take it in. So I invited Ed Young, a Pulitzer Prize-winning science writer and the author of An Immense World, into the arena today. He uses his writing to share with us the experiences of other living beings and how the world appears to them their senses, which in many cases is so different than what we humans experience. But beyond the science of the senses, Ed really wants us to stop, take a moment, go beyond the confines of our own perceptions to immerse ourselves into the richness of life on this planet. So here's Ed sharing a moment that'll help us all see just how immense this world is.
1: So An Immense World is a book about the ways in which animals sense the world. And uh, at the core of that topic is this wonderful word, this wonderful concept called Umwelt. Um, It's German for environment. But in this context, it specifically refers to an animal's perceptual environment. That's the sights and sounds and textures and smells that it is capable of perceiving and that other animals might not be. So, for example, songbirds and sea turtles can sense the Earth's magnetic field. Their bodies are almost living compasses. So the magnetic field is part of their umwelt. It is not part of ours. It's not something we can sense. Similarly, um, ultraviolet light that, just go- that lies just beyond the violet end of the rainbow is something that most humans cannot see and yet most animals that can see can. Things like flowers look very different. Other birds look very different. Much of nature looks very different. So there is this immense variety in what animals can perceive. And I think that is something that a lot of people don't think about because our perception of the world feels complete. Like I'm sitting here um, seeing the room around me, smelling it, feeling it, hearing it. Um, It never strikes me that there are massive gaps, like my perception feels like it's total, but that is an illusion. And it's something that it's an illusion that all creatures share. So you asked about the intention behind the book. Uh, At a basic level, it's about trying to get people to think about the experiences of other creatures, to think about how the world might appear to their incredible senses, how different it might be to what we experience. But going one layer deeper, that is really a call for curiosity and empathy.
0: Um, Umwelt. Okay. So I had never heard that word until uh, I read it in your book. Uh, And it made immediate sense the way you described uh, imagining that you're in a house and that everybody else is sort of in their own house. You know, how you described, you said you could envision yourself with webbing on your arms or insects in your mouth, but you'd still be creating a mental caricature of you as a bat. Mm. I want to know what it's like for a bat to be a bat, which is so, it sounds so simple, but it's it's so uh, humbling to realize that uh, even our ways of putting ourselves in the shoes of another is still so limited. And I'm curious, you did this work. What was most surprising for you? Everything. <laughs> and
1: it's, it's a bit of a cheat answer, right? But, the, but I wrote this book so that um, every page should have a moment that makes someone put the book down and go, wow. Like that, there are so many of such moments um, in thinking about what animals can do. So you ask, like, what what surprised you most? Let's let's take bats as an example. Right, um, most bats can echolocate, which means that they produce these high frequency calls that we can, that are too high for us to hear, and by listening for the way those calls bounce off objects in the in their environment they can sense that environment um, with the same kind of skill and proficiency that we have when we look around. It's almost as if bats use sound to see. And and their skill at doing this is so great that they can um, fly through a maze of hanging wires or stalactites in a cave without crashing. They can hunt down um, and catch insects flying in the wings. Some bats can pluck spiders from their webs their skill at it is truly incredible. So sound loses energy very quickly as it moves through air. Um, And because bats need the the sound they create to not only make the outward journey to an insect, but also the return journey back to the bat's own ears, timing how long the call takes to go out to the insect and back to them. They have to scream. They have to make really, really loud calls. If their calls were audible to us, if they were at frequencies we could hear, they would be the same like, kind of loudness as a jet engine or a rock concert. Imagine trying to shout as quickly as you can, as loud as you can. And imagine trying to do that 200 times a second. That is basically what bats are doing mm. all the time. There are actually humans who can echolocate, um, not with the same skill as a bat, But they definitely do a version of this. You know, I've met some of them and I talked to them in the book. There's a man named Daniel Kish who is blind and has been from close to birth. And he walks around with a cane, but he also produces these loud, sharp clicking noises with with his tongue. Often when people talk about Daniel, he, he almost gets cast as a sort of superhuman. You know, that's not really how I see it. Like, it just speaks to how varied our senses can be. Here are two individuals, like me and him, um, same species, but and, and yet what we're sensing of the world is so incredibly different. You know, I went for a walk with him and he can tell when there's a branch lying across the path um, and he can duck it. You know, we can walk down a street and he'll tell me when we're passing parked cars or um, a lawn versus gravel, fences of different um, material and height. Like, he gets so much from the world. But there are also, like, every sense also carries weaknesses with it. So one thing that echolocation is really bad at is finding small objects on large backgrounds. So if you want to hide from someone or a bat, um, what you should do is stand against a wall because the echoes coming, bouncing off you are going to be swamped by the echoes bouncing off the very large object. Um, So one of the things I talk about in this book is that um, everything is limited in its own way. So, Every sense has strengths and weaknesses. Every animal is good at some stuff and bad at others. And we're each of us getting only this tiny sliver of the fullness of reality as a result.
0: I asked you about surprises. Um, what still remains a mystery to you as you think about all of this research you've done in this amazing book that you've written that is incredibly rich? What is still a mystery? I, I think
1: everything is still a mystery. You know, I, I talked to a sensory biologist who wrote um, a paper saying, open questions in sensory biology, we really don't know anything, do we? And that was published in (laughs) 2017. So this is a field that people have been thinking about since, you know, ancient philosophers, and has had tons of amazing science, enough for me to write a, you know, 300-page book. But the open questions are are vast. Like, as, as you noted, the central problem is that it is impossible to know what is going on inside an animal's head. Like, we can get a long way towards um, towards describing it. So, you know, just take the way a dog smells. Like, I, can, I know the anatomy inside a dog's nose. I know what um, kinds of things a dog is capable of because I've written about dogs that can sniff out, like, polar bear dung and electronics and drugs and disease. Um, but... What does my dog experience when we go on a walk? Like I can guess, but I never truly know. And this is an animal that I spend more time with than uh, than almost any other. Um, so there's always going to be that, that element of unknown. And I think that sometimes makes this, this concept of the Umwelt quite frustrating. But I think it also makes it quite marvellous. There's something, I think, very rewarding about trying very hard at a task that you're never going to be entirely able to complete. You know, and then there are, there are things about the ways animals sense the world, which I think are very, very difficult to study. So here's an example. We know that the largest whales, the so blue and fin whales, produce these incredibly low-pitched calls, infrasound, the opposite of what a bat can do, too low for us to hear. And we know that those sounds can travel across oceanic distances. Navy operators have put hydrophones down off the coast of America and recorded whales singing off the coast of Europe. Now. Do whales communicate over those distances? Can they send messages? Can they talk to each other over the length of an ocean? They should theoretically be able to. Their sounds certainly travel that far. But who knows whether the whales can make use of that information? Because... Of the The speed at which sound moves by the time one whale hears another across the Atlantic, that whale has been doing other things for twenty minutes, so is this like a very long range, very slow form of communication, or is it not that at all? I think that's right if whales are singing to each other over long distances don 't even let's not even talk about oceanic distances let's say like uh, like several miles right then it raises the question of what actually counts as a group of whales? Like the collective known for a, for a group of whales is a pod. What is a pod? Like To a human, a pod of whales is a group of whales that are next to each other. Then you can see all the animals in that group. Right. But if whales can talk to each other over much longer distances than humans can, then is a pod just like a massively distributed group of whales that like are not within visual distance range of each other but can absolutely hear each other and talk to each other. Um, you know, that that's crazy to me to think about. There is a lot of beauty and wonder in, 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 in the fact that there are so many unanswered questions in this field.
0: You know, both of us sound like we're probably very curious people, but part of the curiosity is that every question and every possibility is kind of on the table. Um, we don't really know a lot. And part of what your book revealed to me was when you shared um, – the story of James Audubon, mm-hmm. who believed that vultures didn't actually have a sense of smell, but were using sight alone to hunt. Right. And it wasn't true. And we believed it as humans for so long until it was disproven, you said, I think in the 60s, by a woman who came and said, actually, I don't think this is true. And then realized over a you know period of time that it wasn't, but we had gone on believing it. So it made me go, "Gosh, what else is off the table in our minds?"
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that. A lot of these things seemed like seemed preposterous at the time that they were proposed. Sometimes where people end up with this is as the sort of basis for a lot of like supernatural explanations. Right. My point here is that what is natural, like what living things are actually capable of, is is already extraordinary.
0: It makes me wonder, like, what is supernatural? Maybe it's simply natural, and we just don't know it yet, you know? (laughs) Right,
1: yeah. There are all the people who think that, like, animals, like, say, dogs are psychic, for example, because their owners will come home and the dog will know beforehand and bark at the door and and all of that. Dogs also live in a world of smell, and smell sometimes precedes us. It seeps down um, through gaps and through cracks. Um, It passes by objects that seem like solid barriers that that would um, befuddle vision that we rely heavily on so it's not really a surprise to me that dogs can smell their own coming before a human inside the house would recognize that person is outside the door right you, you don't have to invoke something paranormal um, it's just that what is normal for the animal is so completely different to what we expect and understand
0: we're taking a quick break. We'll be right back with Ed Young on how we can be better stewards of our planet and everyone who lives here. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan,
1: We had such deep empathy. We
0: had such a clear ability to... If
1: you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One.
0: And we're back with Ed Young, the Pulitzer Prize-winning science writer and author of An Immense World. So I'm someone who wanted to read... And listen to this book. I'm fascinated by the world around us, and I do think it has such a deep impact on where we head as a species and as a planet. But for people who aren't going to, you know, dive deep into this work, and maybe asking why should I care about this? What what would you say based on what you understand?
1: So a, a few a few things. Um, a lot of us already live with animals in our lives. Um, you know, a lot of people own pets um and and i think that sometimes the way we um treat those pets um it does them a disservice because we're not thinking about the ways they sense the world so a lot of dog owners will yank their dogs very quickly on long walks because they see walks purely as exercise or travel from a to b um but if you let dogs have their own agency on a walk Typically, what a lot of them do is they spend a lot of time smelling stuff on the ground around them. And that's really important to them. That smell is a huge part of their lives. Dogs that um, can use their noses more um, tend to be happier and less anxious and more optimistic. Preventing them from sniffing is a little bit like if I was going on a hike and I had a friend who um, clapped their hands over my eyes every time I stopped to look at the view. Even if you don't buy the value in understanding what animals themselves are experiencing, I do think that thinking about what they're experiencing changes our understanding of the world around us. Thinking about the way my dog sniffs on his walk tells me stuff about what I'm missing in my neighbourhood, how much it's changing, the information present on the sidewalks and the trees that I'm not privy to, Um, thinking about how gardens and parks around us are full of these vibrational songs made by tiny insects, in this this chorus of information that we can't hear. So there's a lot about the world around us that I think um, seems boring, but actually is incredibly complicated and interesting when you think about what other animals are experiencing. After you know spending 13 chapters thinking about the senses of other animals, the final chapter in the book is, is a sort of call to arms. I write about this problem of sensory pollution. It's light pollution, noise pollution. We have filled the quiet with noise and the dark with light. And while we might not think of either of those two things as problems, or as pollutants on par with belching smokestacks or um, greenhouse gases or plastics in the ocean, they still are problems. They make a life harder for animals, sometimes with fatal results. They push animals out of um, habitats that they could otherwise um, inhabit. And this is not only a conservation issue, but I think it makes our world poorer In the early pandemic, a lot of people were talking about how they could suddenly hear a lot of birds around them in city spaces. And there were, you know, there were these memes about how nature is healing with this idea that animals were sort of flooding back into these spaces that humans were now deserting. It's not quite right. It's just that under normal circumstances, urban settings are so loud that we cannot hear the animals that are literally on our doorsteps. When we are quieter, we hear more and we hear it over longer ranges. And suddenly the nature that is always around us feels, it feels present in our lives in a way that it normally doesn't. You think of nature in wilderness, you think of places like Yosemite or Yellowstone. But if if that's our only conception of nature, then it does feel like something that isn't part of our daily lives and therefore not something that we need to think about, not something we need to protect, not something that we need to cherish. Wilderness is all around us, and I think it is there for us to savor and to safeguard, and we need to do both of those things.
0: To savor and to safeguard. I've heard you mention a couple times this isn't about like the individual, it's about how we impact or think about policy. Mm -hmm. Um, So are you asking us then, as individuals to be more aware of the policies that impact the world that we should be or could be safeguarding and protecting? I think that
1: all the time, and not just in this book, but also in all of my other writing, you know, all my reporting on the COVID pandemic, the greatest tricks that is played upon us is this idea that the solution to grand societal planetary problems really fall on the collective actions of individuals. I am not going to solve the problem of light pollution by turning off my lights at night, or I'm not going to solve the problem of noise pollution by, you know, turning down my stereo, right? Those things can help, but these are things that require policy and regulation at massive scales. They require changes to how cities put up lights at night. They require changes to um, how fast vehicles can go um, on on roads or in the ocean. It's the same with climate change, right? It's not, you're not, we're not going to fix climate change by a million people individually deciding to unplug their TV at night. We're not going to solve the problem of plastic pollution by a million people deciding to recycle. We need massive policy changes that affect things at national and international scales. Similarly, beating a fast-spreading new virus isn't just a case of whether the person next to you in the supermarket is wearing a mask or not. It is also a matter of massive policies, like mandates, despite the fact that they've been unpopular. Um, You know, policies like paid sick leave that allow people to safeguard their own health without risking their livelihood.
0: On this show, I talk a lot about the power we each have. Um, And I've said before, you know, sometimes it feels like the system can't change as fast as I can or as Mm -hmm. fast as we each individually can. So it's like I am being challenged around how much time we spend as individuals doing what we can versus how much pressure we put on systems. And so I do think there's certainly a balance in in how we do that. I'd love for you to answer these three statements. The first is, better humans are. Better humans are.
1: I think all around us. um, You know, I I do truly believe that. Um, I think that it's sometimes not an easy thing to believe. I write about things like, the pandemic and you know ecological catastrophe that make it difficult to sometimes retain hope in a better future and in the sort of the, the possibility of people to be good. But I do think, and my wife reminds me of this all the time, that a lot of people are trying really hard, um, and I think that I've talked about how big the problems we face are. I don't think that we can afford the luxury of nihilism. Um, I think we need to continue believing in the possibility of a better future and the possibility of people to work towards that.
0: And better work is?
1: Better work is about a qualitative understanding of your own worth rather than a quantitative one. I think that a lot of the ways in which we measure our own value and our own success is dictated by this sort of ceaseless productivity culture. Um, you know, I, I'm a journalist, right? Like, I've spent a lot of years in my life um, measuring how good I am by how many hours I put in, how many pieces I can write, um, how many, how many, how many. That is a very fast and inevitable path towards burnout.
0: hmm And a better world has.
1: I'm going to say more empathy in it. That has been so core to the, the ideas in immense world. And it's been so core to what I've written about the pandemic too. You know, a lot of our failures um, during COVID, I think, have stemmed from a catastrophic lack of empathy and inability to understand what other people are going through, the lives of people with fewer advantages, greater risks, But I do think that empathy is a muscle, and I do think that you can build it by flexing it on the regular, and that's what I try, I'm trying to get people to do in all the various forms of writing that I do.
0: Amazing! Thank you so much, Ed, for joining me. It was great to hear your perspective and to have conversations about things I think a lot of people don't get the opportunity to or enter spaces where they can talk about this, so I appreciate the work you're doing. Thanks, Leah. Thanks for having me. That was science writer and author of an immense world, Ed Young. One big thing before we go. Everything in our world is connected, from the tiniest microbes to the largest ecosystems. I think we all know this deep down, but we often need a bit more of a wake-up call. We forget to care or we reserve our concerns for that one day a year when we go outside to intentionally enjoy nature. But we all know the truth is, if you love something, it must be cared for, appreciated. And what could be more deserving of our love and appreciation than our foundation, our planet? Instead of making this a conversation about climate or politics, let's start by simply recognizing how fortunate we are to be sitting on a planet, spinning at 1,000 miles an hour, held here by gravity, where we have the opportunity to explore, love, Learn and live a life surrounded by beauty of some kind every day. If only we'll slow down and look. So embrace this spinning ball that's home to billions of people who, of course, are all connected to each other. If by nothing other than the simple fact that we all live here, we all need here, and we can all be a little more aware and engaged in how to make here a better place to exist. If this conversation has you thinking about your relationship to here, our planet, the people on it, and the animals that surround us, share it with someone who wonders about this stuff too. And help other people like you find this show by leaving us a rating before you go. Even better, write a one-sentence review telling me and my team about what that connection means to you. And as always, you can find me on LinkedIn writing about human potential and meaningful living. In the Arena is a production of LinkedIn News. The show is produced by Alexis Ramdow and Rafa Fariha. Asaf Gadrone makes sure we sound good in the studio and mixed and sound designed our incredible show today. Thanks, Asaf. Enrique Montalvo is the executive producer of LinkedIn Editorial Productions. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of LinkedIn Original Audio and Video. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. And I'm Leah Smart. Thanks for coming with me. And I'll see you all next week.